book of Nehemiah. That was great. Now, now see, I'll tell you, you give me something like that and I can preach all day. So if you're late this morning, blame them, okay? Not me. We won't be. If you have your Bible, let's turn to the book of Nehemiah. What a great book, Nehemiah. Uh, what, what a great book it is. And uh, last week, we really, really slapped some weight on the bar for as far as your spiritual exercising. We gave you a one of those sermons that kind of like pulls everything we've been through so far together. And uh, we gave you a lot of material last week that really uh, helps you understand everything we've already said. And one of the things we did, if you remember, we, we laid out once we got to this point, and, and that's what I told you, this point of your Bible where you're, uh, you're right here at the captivity, is a crucial point in your Bible. It's that change in that dispensation to the times of the Gentiles. I told you that when we got to that point. So a lot of things are happening, and it's a key place to be in, to stop and be able to pull everything together. So I showed you last week how that the Old Testament, the structure of it, falls into three categories. And then we talked about the 70 years captivity, and I showed you how that the books that we've already talked about are built around that captivity in three phases. We talked about that. Then one of, the, one of the amazing things we talked about was the two times that Israel goes into captivity and the two times they return. We talked about how that history always repeats itself and where they go into, where they go into captivity and return the first time, it brings about the first coming of Christ. And when they go into captivity and then return the second time, which was in 1948, we see the second coming of Christ. Then I gave you... That wasn't enough. Then we defined and talked about premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism, and showed you how that the order of the books in your Bible at this time lay out everything that you need to know. And by now, if you're if you're doing any kind of study on your own at all, and you're walking through this as we go, and I don't know of a better way to uh, I don't know of a better way to uh, teach you the Bible. This is an orderly fashion, the way that you just would learn it. If I was teaching in a college class someplace, uh, this is how I would do it. Uh, I wouldn't be able to maybe go into the detail, but you have the benefit of getting that. But uh, we, we saw how it all pulls together. And we saw that in the book of Ezra, inspirationally, they go back and they, they begin to rebuild the temple. And we saw that how that was a picture of your body how they laid the foundation, a picture of a man getting saved there in the early part of Ezra, and then as soon as they start to build that temple, your body, the adversaries show up. And we made this spiritual application, pulling the whole thing together, showing you how that once you get saved, this is why you have the conflict that you have. This is why that once you really get saved and you try to do what's right with God, the devil's going to come knocking on your door. And the adversaries show up, and it defines them very clearly as someone who simply want to weaken your hands and frustrate your purpose. And I've said it many, many times, and I, I say it again today. When you get saved, God saves you because He has something that He wants you to do. He has a purpose for you. The devil, on the other hand, now he understands that he cannot get your soul in hell. He understands that he wants to frustrate that purpose to keep you from ever fulfilling all that God wants you to do. So that's what we looked at last week. Today, we're going to look at the book of Nehemiah. And in this great book, we see uh, doctrinally where last week we saw them go back like they did in 1918. In the book of Nehemiah, we see that the nation of Israel begins to rebuild the city. 
and uh, they begin to rebuild the city, just like I showed you last week that they did in 1948 when I showed you the two exoduses and the two returns there of how it, uh, uh, of all that takes place. Now, what you're seeing basically in the book of Nehemiah, what you're seeing in the book of Nehemiah is what we are living right now. And uh, the book of Nehemiah, uh, from a practical standpoint, uh, is, a, is a book that shows you some incredible things about your life once you get saved. We're going to talk about that. But doctrinally, we touched on this a great deal last week, it shows you what is happening in the Middle East right now. Now, there's three books in your Bible that fit into that progression that we talked about last week that are very important books. Uh, and it is the book of Ezra, we saw that last week, Nehemiah, and the book of Esther we're going to talk about next week. Those three books are very crucial for you as far as you understanding uh, where you're at as far as why God has saved you, what God is doing in your life, and what God is doing in the world. Anything that Fox News, CBS, ABC, or any other news association puts out on the television or the radio, any talk show host, anybody that you listen to, the material they're talking about is the material that is covered in the book of Nehemiah and the book of Esther, or the beginning of Esther, anyhow. So we see the, that, that these books are very important for finding out where we're at for God doing what He's doing with the nation of Israel. Now, the breakdown of Nehemiah is real simple. And I always give you this breakdown so you can put it into your Bible someplace. Nehemiah chapter 1 through Nehemiah chapter 6. It deals with Nehemiah leading the Jews, and it deals with the physical building of the walls and the city of Jerusalem. Chapter 7 through chapter 13 deals under the leadership of Ezra. And Ezra focuses on the spiritual building and the people and the worship coming back to God uh, the way that it should. Now with that in mind, you have a, you have a great picture here. Last week we talked about the book of Ezra, and I showed you how from a practical standpoint, and we're going to deal with the practical today, because uh, I, I laid out the doctrinal last week, so we're going to focus on the practical this week. Last week I showed you how that the book of Ezra is a picture of the day that you get saved. Your Bible says that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you're not your own, you're bought with a price. The day you got saved, you laid a foundation in your life. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says that foundation is Jesus Christ. The rest of your life, you build upon that foundation. And that's why the book of, Nehemiah, uh, book of Ezra is so important from a spiritual standpoint. Chapter by chapter, it shows you what to expect and what you need to do once you get saved and lay that foundation and then how to build upon that foundation with all the adversity and all the things that are going to come in exactly the way it's going to figure in your life. Now, when we come to the book of Nehemiah, the, ne the book of Nehemiah teaches us the New Testament concept and the definitions of once you become a Christian, what do you do with your Christianity? And it lays out the concept of the church. And it lays out for you and for me uh, what purpose God established the church and how to build the church. Remember now, and I've kicked this verse many, many times, but it's been a couple of weeks, so I'll say it again. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us that the things in the Old Testament were for our examples and our examples. We learn by them. The illustrations of the stories that take place and the things that happen, it's all a picture of exactly where you and I are at and what we're accomplishing or trying to accomplish in our lives by the stories in the Bible. 
So I want to talk to you today about that aspect. But let's ask God to bless us today as we delve into His Word. Now, Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. And we love you today. We ask you, Father, to take the Word of God, make it real in our hearts, make it real in our lives. And, Father, may we learn and understand all the things that you have for us today. Help us to lay aside uh, all the things, Lord, that so burden us throughout the week and just focus today on you and your word in our lives as individuals, because that's all that really matters anyhow. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' sake. For his name we ask it. Amen. Now, the book of Nehemiah, which we're going to focus on today, talks to you about the concept of the church. Now, the church is also in the Bible called the body mystery. And it's called the body mystery because it's one of the seven mysteries in the Bible. And we've talked about this before, and in time, we'll come through those and we'll lay them out uh, either through uh, uh, our one-on-one Bible studies or some uh, in our little group with the guys and with the gals. We'll work it out, and time goes on because they're things you need to know. And I'm, sometimes they come up on Thursday night Bible study. But the body mystery is one of the seven mysteries in the Bible. And the body mystery has to do with the church. Paul is given the, the, uh, the designation of being the, the man who reveals that body mystery. God saved him on the, road to, uh, on the road to Damascus down there in Acts chapter 8, and God called him for one purpose only. That purpose was to take the body mystery and reveal it to the Gentiles. When Paul gets saved, he spends three and a half years in Arabia on Mount Sinai, right where Moses was. During that three and a half years, we talked about this on Thursday night a couple of weeks ago, God reveals himself to Paul as far as what he wants Paul to do. Paul is a very unique individual. In fact, Paul himself said that the ministry that he got, he didn't get from another apostle. He didn't get from somebody else. He got it directly from God. And his calling to lay out the church is called the gospel of the grace of God. And Paul was so in tune with it and understood his calling for it that Paul calls it my gospel, showing you the personal aspect that he was the one that God chose to reveal the body mystery, the church. And what he does, he reveals those concepts uh, throughout his writings in the New Testament. The most intimate writing is the book of Ephesians. And in the book of Ephesians, uh, in fact, I've said it many times, the book of Ephesians in the New Testament is much like Song of Solomon in the Old Testament. It's a very intimate book. And in that book, he lays out the intimacies of the relationship between a husband and wife in a physical sense and compares it to Christ and the church in a spiritual sense. And it's the book of Ephesians where he really lays out that body mystery uh, to a great degree. And, uh, but all of his writings are reinforcing all of the doctrines that are now given to the church. And with saying that, I want to explain biblically what the concept of the church is, because we live in a, a time period, and, and we use the word many, many times. How many times have you heard me say the Laodicean church, or the Philadelphian church, or the church at Ephesus? And, and today, if we're so out of touch with the Bible anyhow, that the average concept of the average Christian is that when we talk about the church, when we talk about the church, we're talking about a particular building. And that's simply not true. Now, because we meet in a building and we are the church, it just becomes synonymous after time that because it's a place where the church meets, that that's called the church. Because that's where the church meets. 
But the truth of the matter is, you've got to understand this if you're ever going to figure out the Bible. Because the true church of Jesus Christ has nothing to do with a building anywhere. And let me just explain to you how this got into the mess that we got into. Now you know, if you study your Bible and you go back to the book of Acts, you'll find there that there are two, uh, there are two places that you begin to walk down history to find the true line and the false line. The true line comes out of Antioch. The false line comes out of Alexandria and, uh, and Rome. And we find from that not only two lines of uh, a biblical line and a non-biblical line, we find uh, the two Bibles that we're faced with, and we also find uh, the two aspects of doctrine that we're faced with. And of course, uh, in time, you're going to find that the Roman Catholic Church becomes the, the foremost authority in the world uh, during the Dark Ages. And when she comes to power, she influences the world in such a way that uh, it's never really been influenced like that any other time that I know of in history. Not in a good way, but in a bad way. Her teachings and her false teachings impact everything in the world. And because of that, we see it in music. We see it in, we see it in art. We see it in literature. Her grasp on the world and her false teachings impacted the world in such a way that it really shaped and formed many of the things that we deal with today. And believe it or not, there was what we call an architecture of theology that came into being during this time. The Roman Catholic Church fostered the idea and the concept that the church was a building. And because of that, that's why, through their architecture of theology, they built great cathedrals. Their cathedrals were beautiful and splendor, even in the 9th century, in the, in, in the 12th century. You go to Europe today, and, and, the, and the focal point is, is the cathedrals. And they were built very high, with high steeples. And the reason why they were, is because they wanted that building to stand above everything else. They didn't have skyscrapers back then, they had grass huts. And two-story buildings were the norm. But this church... Whenever you saw the city skyline, the thing that was predominant was the steeple and the cross that you knew where the church was. They're very beautiful. They come up with the idea of stained glass window. So when the light comes through, it filters the light in holy colors. That gives an aurora of spirituality. The, the way the windows are set and the openings in the ceilings are designed in a theology effect to bring the light down, to shine at certain times, to give that mystic effect of how beautiful and serene uh, God must be because of the lighting. And it's all like a set stage to present God. And the truth of the matter is, you know what? They understand or they believe that, that the church is is Christ. In fact, in the Roman Catholic Church up on the altar, there's a little box up there where God lives. And God lives in the, in the wafers and the hosts that, uh, that are consecrated. And so they built this beautiful building around all of this. And even in America, or there are some big cathedrals, but in the, in the littlest podunk town that you go to, if there's a Catholic church, it may not be as big, but it will be a scaled-down model of the big cathedrals that you find in Europe. Why? Because in their teaching, there is an architecture in theology that God is, lives in this house, and this house is God's. So the building is holy. And the building is holy, and that's why in Europe, they don't do it much over here anymore because it's against the law. But in Europe, if you go into the Catholic Church, you know what you find? You find you're walking on dead people. They're buried in the floor. They're buried in the walls. You know why? To them, 
That's what it means to die in Christ. For you and for me, we believe what the Bible teaches, that when I get saved, my life is hid and I am dead in Christ spiritually. They don't believe the church is spiritual. They believe the church is literal. So when somebody dies, depending on how much money you got, if you got buried in the church, you're dead in Christ because the church is Christ. That's how they think of it. That's why uh, over in Europe, you'll see many times if they can't get you in the church, they put a cemetery out by the church. And you're buried on church property. And, uh, you know, if you're a wolf or a vampire, that's hol- that, that, that was the thing. That's hollowed, consecrated ground. You can't come out and bite people if you're buried because it is holy because they look at the building and the ground as God's place. Now, Bible-believing Christians never believe that. Bible-believing Christians be- believe that a building is absolutely nothing. It means nothing. In fact, in Acts chapter 1, 2, and 3, they're meeting in homes. In the early parts of the United States, this is where we got the concept of the open-air tabernacles. This is where we got the idea of the old camp meetings. This is what is commonly called the brush arbor meetings. Open-air tabernacles, people meeting in the fields because the meeting places weren't big enough to hold all the thousands of people. When George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield in particular, when he would preach around the Boston, New England area in the 1700s, 1750s, 1770s, there would be literally 20, 30,000 people that would come. There wasn't any building on earth. And let me tell you something, God was there and God came down and people got saved. But it was in fact that they thought that the church building was anything. They understood what the Bible teaches, that the church is you and me. And the church is a spiritual body that when you and I get saved, we are born into God's Christ church. It has nothing to do with the building. True Bible believers always put the emphasis on the individual people. You see, we get lost in the concept because we all have our little clubs. In Bible Christianity, especially with the Baptists today, you'll find what they call fellowships. You'll have the Southside Fellowship. You'll have the Baptist Bible Fellowship. You'll have the Northwest Fellowship. You'll have the Southeast Fellowship. You'll have the Southwest by Northwest by East-West Fellowship. Everybody's got a fellowship. Those fellowships exist because they have a school. And those schools are their Bible colleges. And they send all of their young people to those schools. And they develop their little their people right there. And then they send them back out to start churches. But they're always associated with that little fellowship. And you got this group, you got this group, you got five or six groups. Usually, all the groups hate each other. And every other group thinks that they're the true group. And most of, there have been volumes and volumes and reams and reams of paper written by men who all they do is, is castigate the other groups and would never have them preach. And if you have somebody from another group come in to preach, wow, you're anathema, man, you're a curse. God can't be with you. And of course... Within those little organizations, you always got your little hierarchy from the Baptist Pope right down to the Cardinals. And that's all that it is. It's everybody wanting locked into a little power grid. Now here's the truth, and here's what the Bible teaches, and here's what we believe. What I believe, this is what this church believes. I don't care who you are and what you are. If you're saved... You can be a Northern Baptist, a Southern Baptist, a left-hand Baptist, a back-end Baptist, or a backward Baptist. I don't care. You can be anything in the world as long as you believe what the Bible teaches. 
I don't care what, who you're with. I don't care if you're up, down, left, or right. As long as you are saved, whether you like it or not, we're all in the same church. Because it isn't a building, it isn't a denomination, and it isn't a fellowship. It's the body of Jesus Christ that every saved, born-again believer is in. And you know what? You might as well have fellowship with them now, because I know you're not going to like this, but you're going to spend an eternity with them, so you better get along with them. I mean, I think some stupid Baptists aptly think when you get to heaven, this will be the Southern Baptist section, this will be the Northern Baptist, this will be the GRB, this will be the Bible Baptist Fellowship. You won't need a big area for that. And there'll be all these different groups around here, and we'll all just kind of be fighting up there. No, that concept comes because we believe that the building is the church, and it's not. The body of Christ is the church. The church is spiritual. It is Christ's body. And that's why, that's why when Paul wrote, you ever notice this when he writes? He says to the, to the church at Rome, to the church at 1 Corinthians, or Corinth. Now, is he writing to one church? No. There's probably, and when he wrote the book of Romans and he wrote to the church at Rome, there's probably a thousand churches in Rome meeting in homes all over the place. But they're all members of one church, the body of Christ. So he doesn't duress them individually. He doesn't say to the 5,252 churches at Rome, except the ones over there that don't do this and don't do that. He says to the church, because Paul understands the concept that individual groups, local assemblies, meeting in homes, all make up the true church. And as long as you believe the Bible, you love the Bible, and you follow what the Bible says, you are part of Christ's church if you're saved. And this is a teaching that is far today from what is being taught. The church simply means called out. In fact, you want to get technical about it, there's five churches in your Bible. There's five churches. This is the only one that is empowered, but there's five called out assemblies in the Bible. We don't have time to get into that. A New Testament biblical local church. That's what we are. We are a group of believers that have decided together to meet together being part of Christ's church. And in that, it's easy to get confused that we are a church. And we are. But we are a local assembly based on the body of Christ mystery that we were born into that we are any better or any worse than anybody else on the face of this planet that is saved. And we can have fellowship with anybody or anything that has the same like-mindedness and love for the Word of God as we do. And the issue has always been and will always be the authority of the Word of God and doctrine. Those are the only things that divide out. And of course, like I said, every New Testament biblical church uh, in, the, in, the New, in the New Testament, all down through history, did not put the emphasis on a building. But they put the emphasis rather on the Word of God. And they spent more time working with the true church than the building. Now, I'm going to tell you this. And I'm not fighting anybody, so if you think i got somebody in mind, I don't. I'm just telling you. The bottom line is this. You look around this country today, and you see some of the most absolutely beautiful, magnificent buildings of places, churches, places of worship, and the whole world you ever saw. And I'm telling you, inside are the most shallow, unbelievable Christians who know nothing about the Bible, who know nothing about life, who know nothing about the relationship with God, you never, never, never have your outside building in better shape than you have your inside building. You spend the emphasis on the people inside. Everything else will take care of itself. 
Unfortunately, in the world that we live in, that doesn't happen. But that's not our problem. It won't happen here. Now, with that Bible concept in mind, and explaining that, and if you grasp that, you'll learn the great lesson, the piece of the puzzle here. Let's look at the book of Nehemiah. Now, in the Old Testament, God has a plan. God has a purpose. And what He does in the Old Testament, we know this already because we've studied it already, and we've talked about it hundreds of times. He's establishing His plan through the kingdom of heaven. And we know that Jerusalem is the central most important part of that plan. In the Old Testament, God gave them three things to accomplish that plan. First thing He gave them was the land, the literal, visible land of Jerusalem. The second thing He gave them was the law through Moses. The third thing He gave them was leaders or kings. And by this, He establishes the monarchy of the kingdom of Israel by giving them three things to accomplish this plan that is in right in the place of Jerusalem where He wants this thing to accomplish. Now, in the New Testament, God has a plan. Much like the plan of the Old Testament, but different. This plan, where Jerusalem was the center of the Old Testament, the church is the center of this one. Individual men and women born into the church of Jesus Christ who meet together in local assemblies understanding the commission that God has given us to fulfill that plan. And where Jerusalem was the central part of God's plan in the Old Testament, the church is the central part in the New Testament where we establish the kingdom of God. And we've talked about the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven from day one. Now, just as God gave them three things in the Old Testament to accomplish that, the land, the law, and the kings, God gave us three things in the New Testament to accomplish this. First thing He gave us was the Holy Spirit of God. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit of God did something that it had never done before. It came and indwelled believers, and that was the first thing that He gave us. Second thing He gave us was the complete, absolute Word of God. Never before had the Word of God been completed. By 90 A.D., when John writes the book of, of John, the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation, it's all finished. And now we have the second thing that He gave us, the Word of God. Now, where the Holy Spirit of God is our guide, and the Word of God, the Word of God is our roadmap to accomplish this plan. We got the Holy Spirit of God, that is the light that guides us. We got the Word of God, which is the roadmap that the light shines on. And we got a job to do. But you know what? If I gave you a, it was the middle of the night, and I said, get to St. Louis in the next three hours, and I gave you a light and a map, there's one thing you need left to do to get that. You know what it is? It's a vehicle. God has a plan. And God, when He went back to heaven, and He gave us the plan, He gave us the Holy Spirit of God as the light. He gave us the Word of God as the map. And He gave us the local church as the vehicle by which we get there. It's as simple as that. That's why the concept of the church is so important. Church being you. That's why the building aspect, and I'm not fighting it. I'm not fighting it. I think that, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I'm not saying that there isn't a day that we'll have to say, uh, we'll have to buy a building. I'm not saying that we won't. I'm just saying, the thing that I am not going to do the thing that I am not going to do is right now sacrifice the most important thing, which is you, to do something that means absolutely nothing at this point, because always 
in the most, you can take this to the bank. You'll never have to think twice about it. Never in my mind will there ever be anything more important in this church than you and the Word of God. There'll never be anything that take precedent. Anything I say, anything I do, any activity we have will only be for one thing, and that will be to help strengthen you in the Word of God because you are the body and the building of Jesus Christ and to build some great big edifice with stained glass windows that makes you come in and feel all warm and fuzzy and spiritually does absolutely nothing for you if you leave not knowing what the Word of God says. And that's the way it has to work. Now, I told you in the book of Ezra, they scraped off the foundation and they began to rebuild the temple. Picture you getting saved. In the book of Nehemiah, they build the city and the walls. And that's a picture of how to build a church. It's a picture of what you need to have and I need to have in my life. I don't know if you know it or not, and I've told you this before. The Bible says that your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost. The Bible says the day you got saved, you laid a foundation on that, on that which is Jesus Christ. And then the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that you're to be a wise master builder. And the rest of your life, you're to build on that, that foundation. Now, when I look at you, here's what I see. And I know I introduce you, I know you call you by name, and I know that I know all of you, and I love all of you, and, and I look at you, I know your family, I know your kids, and I know all of that, but here's how I look at you. I look at you as a building in various stages of completion of construction. Some of you, you just laid the foundation, and you're beginning to put the first foundational blocks on it. Some of you, you got the walls up, and you got the windows framed. Some of you, you got the walls up, the roof on, and you're working on the interior. You're all in different stages of spiritual growth. Now, my job is, is to help you read the plans. My job is to tell you, you know what? I'm telling you, you don't want to build your house on a foundation of eggshells. Don't put cardboard boxes on the first course and then try to build the house on it. It won't hold. My job is to show you how to build it by reading the architectural plans by the greatest architect of building men and women the world has ever seen and help you build your building right. That's my job. That's all I do. And in its most simplistic form, that's what I do. I am a general contractor. I just help you understand what you need to do. Now, in Matthew... There's a verse in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, that it's, it simply says this. It says, a city on a hill cannot be hid. Now, that's a great little concept. Because also in the book of Matthew, you're told to let your light shine. We take our little kids down here and we sing the little song, let the little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. You know? And we talk about the fact that we are, we are a light that shines. Back, uh, back in the book of Judges, in the battle of Gibeon there with uh, 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 Gideon, uh, they had to take a, a, a lamp and, a, and, a, and a, a light and a pitcher. And that's a picture of our light. And it, it, you and I are individual lights. And you and I, the, the more we're in tune with God, the brighter we light. And some, when the moment you get saved, you're a light. The more you get into the Word of God and the more you grow, the brighter your light becomes. And pretty soon, people in the, this church age, this world, is in darkness. And that's why the Bible said, Jesus said, ye are the light of the world. This world is in darkness. And you are the only light this world has. 
When Christ went back, when he was here, he was the light. But he went back to heaven. That's why he said, I am the light of the world, but you are the light of the world. That's why he said, greater things will you do than I did. He went back to heaven, and now he's turned it over to the church. You and me. The men and women who are saved, part of the body, who have decided in a local assembly to be what? I'll tell you what we are. If you're a temple, and 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 you're all temples, then you're all buildings. You know what we got right here? We got a little city. We got a little city. And where I can shine bright by myself, and you can say, boy, we get everybody together, and we're really bright. That's how people get saved. That's how people find out about God. They, in the darkness, they see the light on a hill, and the Bible says a city on a hill cannot be hid, and they see the light, and because men don't like darkness, when they want to know the truth, they move to the light, and they find the light. And the, bright, the more we get into the Bible, the more we learn the Bible, the more every one of you focuses on building your temple individually, the brighter we'll be. You know why? Because this church is only as strong as its weakest member. You can have a chain that has got, got like an anchor chain that's got couplings in it as big as that. And you know what? It's still only as strong as its weakest link. And that's true of the body of Christ. That's why there's always work to be done in training the body of Christ. That's why the devil attacks the body of Christ. This church is a city made up of individual men and women in the body of Christ who provide light in the night, the church age. Now, in that city, around that city, Jerusalem, they're rebuilding it. And where I said Ezra shows you how to build the temple, then this one here, showed, uh, Nehemiah, shows you how to build the church. So they had a city, and they were rebuilding the city, because the city was going to be the light to the world. And around that city was a wall. You know what the wall is? The wall is the protection of the Bible doctrine. Walls kept things out, Walls gave boundaries to who was within. Walls protected you. It was the walls that kept the enemy from coming in. The walls are a picture of the doctrine of the church that are found in the Word of God that keeps heresy from coming in. And the one safe place you ought to have in your life where you can go and know that what you get is pure, is safe, and 100% what God is that you can rest in it ought to be in the church that you go to. Because the city had a wall around it. And that wall is a picture of Bible doctrine. It's protection. And in the book of Nehemiah, they rebuild not only the city, they rebuild the walls. And very frankly, what you've got in the book of Nehemiah ought to be taught to every young ministerial student in the world. Every young man that wants to learn how to build a church, it ought to be church building 101 out of the book of Nehemiah. And yet Nehemiah is not taught in any place around this world anywhere other than maybe a few people that believe the book of how to build a church. And it is God's program. Everything is in the Word of God. Everything, the Bible contains its own system to study the Bible. The Bible contains its own system for laying out dispensations. The Bible covers itself in every angle, and it certainly covers itself. You don't think God would call a young man to preach and build a ministry without giving him the pattern for doing it. That pattern is found in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a definitive book on how to build a New Testament, biblical, local church at any time, any place, anywhere. So we're going to talk about it now, and we're going to lay it out chapter by chapter. Now in chapter 1 and chapter 2, you have three great concepts. And these concepts are absolutely crucial 
uh, in our lives for serving God. And what you have in chapter 1 and chapter 2 is very simply this. You have the right man in the right place at the right time. Three things you want to remember. The right man, the right place, and the right time. Timing is everything. God's timing is certainly everything. And I'm telling you, these two chapters simply show God behind the scenes, setting up the events, getting ready for the man that is the right man to do the right job at the right time in the right place. And that man is Nehemiah. I don't know if you've ever laid it out, but if you come down through here, the story is absolutely incredible. And if God ever calls you to do something, if God ever calls you to do something, Nehemiah chapter 1 and chapter 2 will be the most refreshing, assuring thing you could ever get your hands on because those things can be very strenuous. Those things can be very stressful when you don't know what's out there and you don't know what to do and you don't know how to respond and you have decisions to make about this or that. Let me tell you something. Nehemiah chapter 1 and 2 is the place you can rest because it shows you the procedure of the right man in the right place at the right time. You know who Nehemiah is? Nehemiah down there is a, the Bible says he's the king's cupbearer, chapter 1, verse, uh, verse 11. In other words, Israel's still in the captivity. And God has orchestrated the events to get the right man, Nehemiah, in the right place, the king's cupbearer, at the right time. God is the orchestrator of the events in your life when you are doing what He wants you to do. The hardest thing for you and me to do is to turn our lives over to God to the point where we give God the, 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 the authority in our life, the license in our life, to use us as the right man in the right place, wherever that may be, at the right time, according to His timing. You know why? Because we all are control freaks, every one of us. The bottom line that keeps us from serving God more than anything else is, is you don't want to give up control of your own life. That's it. Bottom line. You say, but I'm a nice person. Sure you are. And you're a control freak on top of it. That's the way we all are. We all have that problem. We want to take charge. We don't want to give God the license. We're afraid he can't do it. So, I'll do it, God. Oh, yes, that'll work wonderful, won't it? As Dr. Phil says, and how's that going for you today? It won't go for you. I'm telling you, that's the biggest problem we have. All right, in chapter 1, verse 3, he hears a report. Somebody comes in and says, Nehemiah. Jerusalem's in disarray. Jerusalem's destroyed. The walls are broken down. It's an absolute mess. It's unbelievable what they have done in destroying the city of God. And he hears that. And when he hears that, he weeps. It moves him terribly. Jerusalem, the greatest city on the face of the planet, the planet, the, the place that was God's program in the Old Testament, is destroyed. The walls that were given for protection are knocked down. And this is what the wisest man that ever lived said. And this shows you how the Bible goes together. When he wrote in the book of Proverbs, chapter 25, verse 28, about your life and my life, he says, a city broken down without walls, powerless. He says, he that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. You know what happens when your life collapses? You know why some of you are the absolute, uh, in your life before you got saved, were the absolute mess, or before you got into the Word of God, you were so emotional, you made dumb decisions, you did it. Why? Because you, you were defenseless. You had no walls up. You're like a city without walls because you have no rule of your own spirit, and that is your emotions. You don't make good decisions. You don't make, you make bad decisions. You have no 
value system in making judgments in your life so you make them after your own spirit. And that is the worst thing you could ever do. He weeps because the walls, the city is broken down. And in chapter 2, verse 1, verse 2, he brings wine into the king. And the Bible says that Nehemiah was always happy-go-lucky. That's why he spilled wine over the floor, because he skipped as he came in. Happy. Go lucky. And on this day, he's sad. He's frowning. He's down the dumps. And the king says, What's the matter, Nehemiah? You're usually all beboppy. You're always happy. What are you all down the dumps for? And he's told a story about his beloved city. He told the story about Jerusalem and the story of God and what God had done and why he was so burdened. You know what the king said? The king got burdened. Down there in chapter 2, verse 6, the king, and this is a strange thing here. It says the king, and in the little parentheses, the queen sitting by him. And there's a strange thing with her. That little gal right there probably is Esther. Probably. But uh, we won't be able to go there. But that's probably who this thing is. And behind the scenes, God is orchestrating the events with the right man in the right place at the right time. Let me tell you a personal story. Many, many years ago, when I got saved, I entered into a process in my life to learn the Bible. I didn't know when or when and how, but I knew that at some point God was going to use me to preach. I don't know how I knew that. Maybe I just wanted him to. I don't know. But I knew this. I knew there was never going to be any way I could until I learned that book. So I dove into it. I mean, I didn't do it like some of you do it. I jumped into it the way the Bible lays it out. I went after it the fastest, quickest way because I know I didn't have a lot of time. And I also knew I was dumb, and I had to do it the easiest way there was. So I worked that thing through, worked that thing through, worked that thing through, and one day, one day, out of the clear blue, I get a phone call from a guy who doesn't even know me, who a guy that I don't even know how he knows who I am, and says, we want to fly you out to Kansas City. We'd like to talk to you about coming out and working in our high school department. Well. Now, let me tell you my predicament now. I worked at the Hoover Company after I got out of the Army, where they make vacuum cleaners. So if yours crapped out on you shortly after you bought it, that's probably one that I put together. <laughs> I really, I drove a fork truck. I didn't, I didn't do them. I ran over people's foot and, you know, chased them around. So anyway, back in 1972, there was a recession. And Hoover Company laid off everybody, and I got laid off. And, you know, I had, we were just married at that point, short time, and, you know, uh, Barb was working, at her, her, her family were in, had, were in a grocery store. And uh, I, I didn't, you know, we didn't have a job, and, and, uh, and her brother, who was running the grocery store, said, well, you know what, you're my brother-in-law, we need to take care of you. I'm going to show you, teach you how to be a produce manager. And I'm going to show you how to, you, we'll take you in the family business, and, you know, you got to be here, you're part of the family. You know, my wife worked there, you know, and, uh, and so I, he taught me. I didn't know nothing about produce. 
man, I mean, apples and oranges, man, I don't know anything about it, you know. I mean, I didn't know how the tricks to keep lettuce looking fresh when it's not, so you'll buy it, and then I won't have to deal with it, and it ain't no good for you, and you think it's your fault, but I learned those things, you know. I mean, every, every morning, you know, I'd get out there and put that stuff in the cold water, and that's why I say to you many times, let us pray, you know. I mean, that's how it works. Sometimes I'd sing, revive us again, because they were so far gone, I didn't think I'd get the color back in them, but I did. He spent a lot of money, sent me to all kinds of seminars, fruit seminars. Got to be careful saying that today, but back then it was okay. I went to seminars. I knew my avocados from my peaches. I knew everything. Man, I go in my, you walk into that store and my display case and my thing down there was just beautiful. I mean, the colors, blending the colors. I mean, they taught you how to be artistic and they taught you that people buy produce because, not they want it, because how it looks. You get the colors all right, the lady looking down there going boom, 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 boom. And I had them going down there, boom, boom, boom. I had, I had them, they bought everything, man. And then I got this phone call. Now, my brother, I'd only been doing this now for, what, probably four or five months. Now I got this phone call of what I've dreamed for all my life. The opportunity of a lifetime. And what am I going to do? I flew out to Kansas City, never told my brother-in-law. Because I didn't know what to do. Came back. I mean to tell you what, I was dying. I felt so bad. I wanted to do this all my life. And now I found like I was in a place where I couldn't do it because of family. And my, her, Barb's family was unsaved. And I thought, what a terrible testimony that would be. What am I, and I was in a dilemma. And I remember, I remember coming back on that plane from Kansas City, knowing what I wanted to do, the burden and fire in my heart like you'll never know. And, and, and not knowing this, I didn't know where this was all going to go and we'd all what we'd do in these last days, but I just knew, and I, but I didn't know what to do. And I'll never forget, I was, the next morning, I was so, I sick. I didn't sleep that night. I didn't know what to do. I, I'm caught in the middle. And boy, if God ever taught me a lesson about the right man and the right place and the right time, he taught me a lesson I never forgot. I don't know how he found out about it, but my brother-in-law found out the opportunity that I had. He knew where my heart was. He's an unsaved man, or he was. I don't know if he is now or not. He'll call me in to his office, and he says, Bob, I said, yep, Tommy, what do you need? He said, you're fired. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean I'm fired? He said, you know what, buddy? I know about the opportunity you got, and I know that's been your heart and your life. He said, don't you worry about this place. You go do what God's called you to do. Right man, right place, right timing. Never forgot it. God only has to give you one of those. And if you're paying attention, it'll carry you through the rest of your life. And the whole key to that is the Holy Spirit of God in your life. And what follows here in this chapter of this book is a picture of when God's man, in God's timing, in God's place, has a burden to build the church, men and women. God shows him how to do it and also shows him the opposition to expect when he begins to do it. And it's an incredible. In chapter 3, that was 1 and 2, in chapter 3, they begin to rebuild the walls. And as they begin to rebuild the walls, 
The Bible says there's nine gates in these walls. Nine gates. Now, I don't know if you know what you know about the Bible or what you don't, but let me just say this to you. There are certain numbers in the Bible that mean certain things. Now, I know you can make anything mean anything with numbers. I know that. And my rule of thumb is this. If the Bible doesn't lay it out clearly, then don't, don't go there. But there are certain numbers that are just, you can't, I mean, there's no way you can, you can get around it. And the number nine in your Bible, the number nine in your Bible, there's no question about it. Nine in your Bible is fruit-bearing. It's fruit-bearing. You say, how do you know that? Because in Galatians chapter 9, Noah is told to be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. And when Abraham has that, that, gets Isaac, the promised fruit, he's 99 years old. And there's nine fruits of the Spirit found in Galatians, which is the ninth book in the New Testament. Galatians has nine letters in its spelling. Those nine fruits of the Holy Spirit are found in verse 22 and 23. Add them up, it's nine. Nine in your Bible is fruit-bearing. And these nine gates are a picture of what you and I have to have in our lives in this church to be successful and be fruitful. It's as simple as that. It's so easy. Somebody says, you have a plan to build your church, brother? No, I got nine of them. Nine in your Bible is fruit-bearing. And just in case you ain't put it all together yet, the book you got in your hand says, Holy Bible, nine letters. I probably, you got a King James, count it up, nine letters. And I think it's a 1611. Six and three is what? Oh my, where'd you get that book at? That's the book that you bear fruit with. These nine gates are the entryways into this city. And in your life and my life, as we build this New Testament local assembly... And we understand who we are. We know that as we build the doctrine around this church, we got to have basically nine gates in this church to reach people for Christ. And oh, my friend, might as well get into them. The first gate, first gate as you come down through there in chapter 3, verse 1, is the sheep gate. The sheep gate is the first one listed because, let me just tell you something, if you don't understand what Christ did for you on the cross, you'll never do anything for God. And that is sacrifice. The first gate is the gate where they brought in the sheep to be sacrificed and points to me and to you that the number one gate in this church and the number one thing we do for what we do, everything we do, is what He did for us. And I'm just going to be very plain in some of these and very honest in some of these and just tell you, if you don't understand what Christ did for you in your life of sacrifice, that's probably why you are the way you are. That's probably why you are indifferent. That's probably why you are doing your own thing. That's probably why you're so far out in left field you couldn't even catch the ball if it came your way. I'm telling you, you have to understand sacrifice. The thing that will hold this church together, the thing that will get us through the toughest times in the world, the thing that will get you through the toughest times in your life is understanding what Christ did for you on Calvary's cross, His sacrifice, making it possible. Now, you and I must sacrifice. Second gate, the fish gate. We know that Jesus said, I'll make you fishers of men. This church, body of believers, and this local assembly need to be soul winning. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 11 verse 30 that he that winneth souls is wise. 
Now we ought to be soul winners. Every Christian ought to be a soul winner. Now let me just say, so we're starting a Thursday night visitation program instead of Bible study, and we're going to start knocking on doors. We're going to divide you up into areas, we're going to go knocking on doors, and we're going to, we're going to win people to Christ, right? Wrong. That's the stupidest thing you ever did in your life. Somebody said, well, it worked for me. I'm not sure it did. Look at your church now. No, no, let me tell you something. You don't win people to Christ by knocking on doors. You don't win people to Christ by shoving a track down their face. You win people to Christ by becoming their friend, by God letting put you in the right place. I hate to keep using the Bible, but I just don't know what else to do. The right place, the right man, and the right time, and then orchestrate the events to win people to Christ. You know there's three aspects to soul winning. Now, there isn't a Baptist fundamental guy in the world that knows this because he thinks the heartbeat of God is souls. We know different than that. We know the heartbeat of God is the Word of God. And when you run everything through the book, then everything else plays itself out. There's three aspects of soul winning. Three aspects. Three aspects. There's a sowing, there's a watering, and there's a reaping. You get that out of the definitive passage in the Bible about soul winning, Acts chapter 8. You'll find there an Ethiopian eunuch. You'll find that somebody reaps that Ethiopian eunuch and wins him to Christ. But you'll find that Ethiopian eunuch has got the book of Isaiah chapter 53. Somebody sowed. And I promise you, when somebody sowed, somebody's, somebody sowed, somebody's watering, and somebody's praying for him. You see, there's three aspects. Sometimes God wants you just to sow the Word of God. He doesn't want you to reap. Trying to reap when God wants you to sow is the worst thing you can ever do. Sometimes God wants you to sow, and God wants you to, God wants you to water. He wants you to pray for him. Sometimes God wants you to reap him. Sometimes he'll give him a track, he'll witness to him, I'll get to reap him. Sometimes I'll give him, he'll get to reap him. We get so caught up in this notching my pistol with souls I won to Christ that we lose sight of the fact that soul winning has nothing to do with a program. It has nothing to do with this church going out and knocking on doors. Soul winning, soul winning is the natural intimate response that happens in your life when you have an intimate relationship with the Holy Spirit of God. You will bear fruit. And when you don't have that intimacy, that's when you knock doors. That's when you stick tracks. That's when you force the issue to try to get somebody saved. Hey, I have been in it. I've seen it. I've known. I, I preached at a church one time, and I, and, I, and I went out with some guys, and here was the thing. They, every night, they were on a soul-winning drive. Every night, they had somebody preach and motivate them for 20 minutes. Then everybody... 1,100 people fanned out through the city, win somebody to Christ, and then bring them back to church to be baptized. Now we're going to have a hallelujah time afterwards because we're just going to get so many people saved. And it is the biggest farce you have ever seen in your life. I was there that week. I was one of the preachers. I went out with the guys. And these guys were smart. They knew where to go to get people saved to come back to church because if you didn't, you looked like you failed. If you didn't bring somebody back... The guy that preached at the end of the thing made you feel like a sheep-killing dog or you weren't spiritual. And nobody likes to feel like they're not spiritual, even if you're not spiritual. I'm hardly ever spiritual, and I don't like to feel that way or anybody else feeling that way. But anyway, you know what? So we know where I went with the guys? Because they had food afterward. These guys were smart. They went down on the skid road in the City Union Mission place down there, got all these bums, gave them a profession of faith, brought them back to feed them, and then these bums in the baptism up there, are you saved? I sure am. My first wife ought to see me now. <laughs> I mean, it was crazy. But it was all a big sham, all a big show. Why? Because when we were done, we were saying, wow, look at that. God gave us, you know what? 
There wasn't one of those people that ever came back to church after that night or ever saw them again because, you know what, they really didn't get saved. You know, that's not soul winning. You know what soul winning is? It's you taking the time in your life to invest your life one-on-one with a person in the cubicle next to you or down the office or who God puts into your life because you're the right woman, right man, right place, right time, and God gives you the right open door, and they're going through a tough time. They're going through this, and God uses you, and you bring them, and you bring them along. You show them this. You bring them to Bible study. You become their friend. They see you reading your Bible. They ask you a question, and bang! But we ain't got time for that. Not today. No, no, the machinery gears are moving. Get them in as many as we can, fast as we can, any way we can. Who cares about what? Once we get saved, hey, they're in heaven. What do we care if their life falls apart? <laughs> they're going to heaven, glory to God. Yeah, right. The fish gate. The fish gate. The key to soul winning is your intimate relationship with the Holy Spirit of God of understanding when to sow, when to water, when to reap, and understanding when God puts you as the right man or woman in the right place at the right time. Then the next gate, chapter 3, verse 6, the old gate. The old gate would be the, would be the history, the heritage, taking men and women and showing them where they've come from so they know where they're going, so they know where they're at. Having your children raised in an environment that teaches them the biblical side of things. They understand the landmarks and all the things that go along with it. That you can understand why we believe what we believe. Why you have the Bible you have. Why we, why we hold true to what we hold true. Why we do things that we do. The next gate's in chapter 3 verse 13. It's the valley gate. The valley gate has to do with compassion. The way you win men and women today is understand the culture that you live in is an insane asylum run by the inmates. There's more people busted and broken and unhappy out there looking for the answers. And you know what? The church has failed to give them the answers. You know why this country's the way it is today? I'm going to tell you why. I hinted at it before, even said some things before, but I will tell you the bottom line. In my day and age, when I was growing up, this is the late 60s and the early 70s. Some of you remember those times. We had what they call hippies. Now, it's hard to find a hippie today. They're on an endangered species list. They're like Tyrannosaurus rexes. There are not many of them around. But in my day, a hippie was somebody who rebelled against the establishment. The norm in most Christian areas was short hair. And that's another whole farce, you know. If the hair touched your ears, you were ungodly. So, and they wore clothes that were out of touch. And they had a message. And they were seeking. And when they came, and I know this is true, what I'm about to say. When they came to Baptist fundamental Bible-believing churches, they were turned away. Because they didn't have the right length of hair. Their clothes didn't match up with the people that were there. And so they were told, I know this is true. I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen more than I want to know that I've seen it happen. I've seen them met by the doors, by the deacon hierarchy, and saying, don't you come back here till you get some clothes and you get your hair cut, hippie. And they were turned away. And we walked away and said, well, well, I'll tell you what. We sure protect, you know what, those same hippies that were looking for the answers and had their own agenda are now the leaders of this country. Because the church failed to have compassion, to take them in the way they were, to hear their issues, 
to debate their issues and point them to an absolute standard that gave them what they... You see, they wanted free everything. They wanted free love. They wanted no work. They wanted to be free from the bathtub. They wanted to be free from everything. Now, I don't have a problem with that because I have a book that will set you free. It's just not the same kind of freedom. You see, a lot of people are looking for things and they don't know what they're really looking for. You know that's true? And if there ought to be one place where the church is tolerant as people who are looking. But you know, because they didn't meet our little criteria of what we thought somebody looking for the truth should be like, like me, we turned them away and we lost them. We lost not one generation, we lost five generations. And that's why this country is in the mess that it's in today because the people that we turned away 30 years ago are now running this country and they're a lot worse now than they were then. And we still haven't figured out why. Compassion. This church, made up of men and women in this local assembly, need to be compassionate to people who are less fortunate than we are. Passionate to people. Letting them be where they're at but holding the standard of the Word of God to show them the truth. Well, the next gate, 3, verse 14. Now, this is the only gate, this is the fifth gate. This is the only gate where nobody goes in, but stuff comes out. <laughs> this is the dung gate. And I'm not going to, I'm not crude, I'm just telling you the bottom line. If you get offended by that, you know what, my goodness. Better stay home and not cross the street, you get hit with a car. <laughs> but I just got to say some things. I just got to tell you here that this is the gate where they took out the trash. One of the things you've got to understand, and I said this a couple of weeks ago, I told you that the litmus test for people is the Word of God, truth. I am not so naive that I understand that in the day and age that we live in, if there ever was a day and age, that everybody wants the truth. And I fully understand that not everybody is going to appreciate what this ministry offers. Because there's people who are looking for what they want to hear. And I, and I just, I am not so stupid or naive in my life that I think that this ministry, or really any ministry, is for everybody. This ministry is based on the truth of the Word of God as clearly as I know how to lay it out. I try to keep it as biblical in everything that we do. And I figure that that is, the, that is the test case. And, you know, some people like it, some people don't. Some people come for a while. You know, I mean, we got people that have their own churches and they just visit with friends or whatever. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people who are out there looking around. I mean, we've had them come in. We've had them come in and we just say, you know what? Boom, that's not what I like. That's not what I'm looking for. And that's fine. That's fine. I understand that the body, the body, the body has to have a process of elimination. And the process of elimination is truth. And you know what? I'm telling you, this idea, we want to get everybody we can and can everybody we get, you know, and just keep them here. You don't want to do that. You don't want people, a member of anybody that doesn't understand the Word of God or want to understand the Word of God and want to accept the Word of God. They're just going to cause you problems. And that's not what we're about. God has called us to peace. And I don't care what a person believes. I really don't. I could care less. I just know what the Bible teaches, and I know what my responsibility is, and I know what God's going to hold me accountable for teaching. So we take that. Those that want to come, fine. Those that don't want to come, no problem. See you at the judgment seat of Christ. Next gate. 
Gate number six, the fountain gate. And the fountain gate is fellowship. The Bible talks about the fact that in the book of 1 John, it says, This then is the message which we have heard of Him, and declare unto you that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. And if we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. That's, that's the fountain gate. The fellowship. The fellowship. The things that we do. Last night they had a ladies' deal where uh, they, that's fellowship. That's having a time. That's drinking at the fountain. Oh, you're not necessarily opening up the Bible. It's not fellowship in the sense of, of walking in the light as he is in the light, but it's fellowship in the sense of having a sense of camaraderie. This next weekend, we're going down there. It's just, there's a, it's just it's a wholesome, fun concept about just being together where you don't have to be part of the world. You don't have to do this. You don't have to do that. But I do hear down here that there is one of those party coves. I've got that inside information, so I'm telling you right now. You and I will check it out and make sure that it's okay before anybody else goes in. Jimmy, hand me the binoculars. (laughs) Whatever. The fountain gate is our fellowship. It's the place where we, we, we love each other. It's the camaraderie that we're in this together. That the Word of God is the joy in our hearts that no matter what happens, we have one thing that nobody else can take from us. And that is a book that God gave us and a camaraderie together that we're in the church together. We're part of the body. Not only are we going to get to spend eternity together, we get to spend today together, next week together, until Jesus comes back. We, we feed off each other. Iron sharpeneth iron. We help each other. We feed off each other. We strengthen each other. We laugh with each other. We laugh at each other. We laugh with each other. We have fun. We enjoy things. We enjoy life because we joy in other. And the bottom round concept is the fact that, that, uh, that we're all saved and we're all on our way to heaven and we're all brothers and sisters in Christ and we have a fellowship together. And whatever we do, we do for the sake of just being together. Nothing greater in the whole of the world. And chapter 4. Oh, I'm sorry. Then the next one. The next one down through here is, is uh, verse 326. Number, gate number 7. The water gate. The water gate is the preaching ministry. Water in the Bible is a type of the Word of God. We're going to talk about this a little bit later on when we get into chapter 8. But, uh, but this gate here has to do with this church has to have a Bible teaching, Bible preaching ministry. It has to be based on the Word of God, putting out water, giving you food, giving you what you need. Nothing in this world, nothing in this world refreshes like a good cold drink of water to your soul. That's the Word of God. Then in chapter 3, verse 28, gate 8 and 9. These gates are together, the horse gate and the eastern gate. The horse gate and the eastern gate both stand for the same thing, the second coming of Christ. There's a double emphasis on this gate because in any church, the emphasis ought to be on the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not out here like we're going to live forever. We're dug in. We're an outpost. We're holding on to the last, we're holding on to the last graves of the battle, waiting for the Lord to come back. We know He's coming back. And the emphasis of any church needs to be focused on the uh, two things. One, the judgment seat of Christ. Two, the second coming of Christ. They'll keep your perspective. Nothing in this world will keep a church's perspective better than understanding the Lord's coming back and giving you direction and purpose of what in the world you're supposed to be doing and you don't get caught up in this lethargical, uh, spiritual, spooky thing where you think you're going to live forever you don't know what's going on. You realize that we of the church have a mandate. 
that mandate is the second coming of Christ and everything in this church, everything we do, everything we teach will point to that day which is God's day, the day of the Lord, over 600 times in the Old Testament alone, the day of, G day of, day of God, the day of the Lord, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything laid out in those church, uh, chapter 3. Nine gates. Nine gates. So we see him build the wall. We see him put those nine gates in perspective. And those nine gates represent what, when we build a church, you, the city, the wall, the Bible, protection of doctrine, and the way that people come in. And then in chapter 4, 5, 6, and 7, you might know, a man by the name of Sambalet shows up. Now we see the opposition that comes when you build God's church. Going down through those chapters, it's, it's kind of unique. The Bible says that they, that, that, that they were grieved. There were people that were actually upset that somebody came to help the children of Israel put it all back together. The Bible says they laughed and they mocked them. The Bible says they conspired against them. The Bible says they made false accusations against them. The Bible says they lied against them. The Bible says they laid traps for them. And when you come down through those chapters, you see how that the opposition will always be when you try to do something for God, the opposition is going to come and it will lie about you. They'll, it grieves them. They'll laugh at you. They'll make fun of you. They'll, and, and all of these things. But I'll tell you what. Chapter 4, verse 6 was a great verse. In spite of all the opposition, in spite of all the lies, in spite of being grieved, in spite of mocked and laughed and conspired against, the accusations, the lies, and the traps, the Bible says, so we built the wall. You bet they did. In spite of it all. So he built the wall. And the wall was joined together under the half thereof. Why? For the people had a mind to work. You see, when you get the mindset to do what God wants you to do and you understand what the work is, the opposition doesn't bother you. They can't stop you. You just move on and do what God wants you to do. Then in chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10, we find the ministry of the New Testament Bible-believing local church. Oh, man, uh, you get into chapter 8 here, and you read down through here. If you read, sometimes just take chapter 8 and read verses 1 through church 12. He starts out and says, And all the people gathered themselves together as one man in the street which was before the water gate. See? Water gate. So what we got here, well, this look what we got here. And he spake to Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law and Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation of both men and women, and all they could hear with understanding upon the first of the day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the street was before the water gate from the morning to the midday, and the men and the women and those that could understand with all the ears of the people were attentive under the book of law. And Ezra the scribe stood up on a pulpit of wood. Pulpit of wood. You know what's distinctive about the Baptist churches? Baptist churches always have the pulpit in the middle. You go to every other church in the world, it's either over here or over there or someplace else, or you have split pulpits or whatever the case may be. But in Baptist churches, this thing was started, and now other churches copy it, but the Baptist church always had their pulpit in the middle because they understand Ezra chapter 8, and they realize they put it in the middle because they always wanted the focus of the church to be the preaching of the Word of God. Ezra chapter 8. Ezra chapter 8. How when you come down here in verse 1, you find that they're, they're like one man. They're unified. Verse 3 says they're paying attention to the Word of God. They have respect to the Word of God in verse 5. The Bible says in verse 8 that they read distinctly and they gave the sense. And they caused them to understand. Because the Bible's got doctrinal, inspirational, historical meanings to it. 
Verse 7 says, the older men and women help the younger ones understand what the Bible was saying. Oh, my friend, I'm telling you. And the Bible says in verse 9 that they, well, let's read verse 9. And Nehemiah, which is the uh, Tirish, you're right. Maybe I shouldn't have read verse 9. That's governor. <laughs> and ever the priest described the Levites that taught the people, said unto all the people, This day is holy unto the Lord your God. Mourn not, nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the Lord. You know what? The one man unity and the attentiveness of the Word of God and being taught to respect the Word of God and being taught the Word of God distinctly and older people helping the younger people. You know what it all brought about? It brought about verse 9. And all the people, they fell in love with the book and fell in love with the author of the book. Can't help it. Can't help it. That's our church. Now where do we go from here? Look at verse 10. Then he said unto them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet, and send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy unto the Lord, neither be ye sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Unity, one man, verse 1. Verse 3, attention to the Word of God. Respect the Word of God, verse 5. Read it distinctly. The older ones helping the younger ones in verse 7. People falling in love with the book and the author of the book. And in verse 10, he says this. Number 1, enjoy the Word of God. Hey, enjoy it. It's your book. God gave it to you. Enjoy it. Love it. It's a joy of your life. It's the strength of your life. Teach your kids love that book but then after you love it and you get filled with it next thing take it to others that don't have it see that thing he said then he said go your way eat the fat drink the sweet and send portion to them whom nothing is prepared that's the job of this church you enjoy it but don't stop there you take the book to somebody else that haven't got it I told you when we started this church we just wasn't going to jump into a lot of stupid things like most Baptist churches do. But we're going to do it biblically and do one thing at a time as God showed us and God led us. And I told you about missions. I told you the fact that, you know, we weren't just going to go out there and send us a list of missionaries so we can send money because most missionaries are idiots. And I don't want, you know what? I want to put, I want to put our money where our mouth is. And I just been holding back on it, telling the boys to hold back on it till we found where. And God, God made it so clear. A number of years ago, well, let me tell you this story first. You know those wide margin Bibles you get? Let me tell you something. And I told you this when we started our church. If we really believe what we say, that we need to be putting out that book to people that don't have it. And I told the boys, I said, you know what? I said, uh, it's, it, we, we, we tell our people to tithe. We teach our people to tithe. This church needs to tithe. It was an organization that puts King James Bibles in the hands of 50 different languages. I mean, they are worldwide and they sent around. And I just said, write a tithe check off what we got in the bank and send it to them. A number of years ago, I met one of their boys. Some of you were with me on that trip. We went to Brazil with Dr. Finini to teach his church. Steve Brackeen, senior back there, was a missionary down there at that time. In fact, he was our contract, contact going down there. And I'll never forget, Steve called me and he said, we're having a problem with the King James text down here. 
And he says, uh, you're coming down to do discipleship. Now, you got to understand, this guy, Dr. Fanini, he was like the, and Steve knows what I'm telling you, he's like the Billy Graham of South America. I mean, he is, he is the number one guy. Whatever he says, you do around the country. I mean, when they have a national crisis, the president calls him and puts him on the phone and on TV, and he calms the people. This guy was incredible. And this guy was going either way. We were going down to teach him discipleship. Steve Sr. called me on the phone and says, and I'm glad you're here today, Steve, because you can verify everything I'm saying. And he called me up on the phone and said, hey, look, all the Bible professors down here from the Bible colleges want to know if you'll debate them on the issue of the King James Bible and settle this issue once and for all. Well, this is a national thing. I said, sure, let's do it. <laughs> he said, there's about 20 of them. I said, well, 20 against one book. That's probably pretty good odds. Let's do it. Well, so we go down there, and on Saturday, we got down there, we had worked the whole week. On Saturday was the big debate. All the, I mean, they got into this big auditorium, the place was packed out, they were pushing it, Dr. Fanini was behind the scene doing the whole thing and laying the whole thing out. And, and God brought into my path a man down there, Thomas Gilmore. Thomas Gilmore has a, is a missionary to, to South America. His ministry is primary to the Jews, the nation of Israel, but he does everybody, he's a great guy. And he is pro-King James. And he came up to our meetings, and he translated me for one night. And boy, he fell in. And we and I worked together, and he was a great translator. And we worked really well together. And he, he says, he says, oh, he says, uh, can I translate for you uh, this thing? And I said, sure. Because I really was comfortable with him. Translating, seeing the translator is tough. You find somebody you can work with, marry him. And so I, you know, I said, yeah, that's great. So everything was built. We got there, place was packed. Saturday, I mean, everybody from everywhere was coming in there to hear this shootout between me and them guys, you know, on the issue of the authority of the Word of God. And, and lo and behold, Dr. Fanini's up there, you know, and he's the big guy, and he set this whole thing up. And lo and behold, none of them show up. Dr. Fanini lost so much faith, face over that. He was so angry. He came to me and he said, we had slotted four hours for this debate. He says, you take all four hours and teach these people why the King James Bible is the Word of God. When we were done, Dr. Fanini came to me and he said, there will never be any other translation put in this country through our organization other than the King James Bible. Thomas Gilmore called me a couple of weeks ago. He was in this country. In fact, he, he, he had a schedule. He was going to be here, and he couldn't make it. You know what he told me? He brought it up, and he says, Bob, he said, that was the most life-changing concept in my life. He said, since that time, through that debate and through the organization that we sent the tithe to, there have been 7 million King James Bible going to that country. You know what we're doing? We're enjoying the book. We're loving it. We have the greatest time on Thursday night. We have the greatest time in everything we do. But this don't stop there. Let's send portion to those that don't have any. Let's send that Bible out around the world. I got an organization that'll do it. They put them out everywhere. They'll send people down here to show us what's going on and teach. I mean, it is the it is. It is and I just it's just one of those things. I told you, I'm not wasting our money that God gives us. That your money that you tithe. I'm not going to put it on some foolish guy that don't know what he's doing. Not when I got a place that'll put in seven million Bibles in one country and put Bibles around this world where that truth is put out. They translate the King James Bible into every language almost on the face of this planet. And I'm telling you what, they're a great organization. And that's what this church is all about.
It's the unity. It's the attention to the Word of God. It's the respect of the Word of God. It's reading the Word of God distinctly, teaching it. The older guys teaching the younger guys. Me teaching you, pointing the thing out. People falling in love with that book and then sitting around and just having what we have today because we love it. Look what it's done for our families. Look what it's done for our marriages. Look what it's done for our lives. Look what it's done for every aspect of our life. Look how happy we are today. And then we sit around and what do we say to each other? We say, congratulations, congratulations, we've done a good job. No, we sit around and say, you know what? Now that we got it, let's cake some and send some where nobody's got it. 